Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We are fresh off of the first weekend of action in the 2021 college baseball season, which is super exciting to say. There are finally games that we can talk about, results on the field, as opposed to just what we think is going to happen, uh, or <laughs> even worse, what was happening in the offseason, which was, uh, you know, of course, a little muddled and, and a whole lot of nothing. So we are we are very excited to be able to talk about the, the actual games on the field. But first, I've got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Na- Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. Check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, weekend one is pretty well in the books. As we sit here and record this on Monday morning, there are still a smattering of games to be played. Uh, the One of the stories of the weekend was how weather affected everything. And that meant that several games got pushed back. There are teams that uh, weren't able to start until Sunday. There are a few teams that haven't been able to start until today. Uh, but for the most part, college baseball uh, got its opening weekend off. I've, more than for the most part, college baseball got its opening weekend off. Uh, and after 344 days without a college baseball game in Division One, there is nothing more that you know it, it can, can excite the college baseball fan. That is, it, it was it was a fantastic sight on Friday to have college baseball back happening live and. You know, Joe, I know you were excited. I was excited. It was it was just a great weekend to have the sport back. Oh, my goodness. Was it ever? It was really nice to get back. You know, I kind of pushed myself to, to get out to a, a game site this weekend just to kind of celebrate it being opening day and talk a little bit about how unique that's going to be this season. Just, you know, I was sitting outside in no press box seating at Wake Forest because of the how small that space is and they're trying uh, rightfully so to not have a bunch of people congregating in the press box. So I sat outside on uh, you know, wake's got some little, what I would describe as kind of like cocktail tables uh, set up on the concourse. And, and I sat out there in the elements with my, my, my layers right down to thermal, thermal underwear and heavy socks, and then a jacket and a coat and a hat, you know, uh, hand warmers, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I kind of pushed myself to do it because I just kind of wanted to be there at a game on opening day and it felt great. Uh, it felt cold, but it felt great. The second part of it though, was it, it was kind of, you and I talked about this. It was, it was as great as it was. It was also kind of weird because it, it has been 300 and whatever you said, 44 days since we've had a college baseball weekend to, well, a little more than that since a weekend, uh, a few more days than that, but it just kind of, it was, it was, it was, familiar in a lot of ways, but it also was, you know, they say it's like riding a bike. This was like we hadn't ridden a bike in 10 years, you know, and tried to get on it where it it came back to me, but it took a little while to kind of get to the rhythms of what covering a college baseball weekend felt like because it had just been that long. So I'm actually looking forward to the next couple of weekends because now I feel like I kind of have my legs under me a little bit. Whereas I don't know about you, but we had a reduced number of games this weekend because some 
conferences aren't starting until later and weather wiped things out and, and on and on and on. And yet there were times where it felt like, you know, drinking from a fire hose, which is always kind of the case with, um, you know, the number of college baseball games we have going on on a weekend. But, you know, I just felt like I, I was out of practice with kind of prioritizing what I should be watching at any given moment and, and keeping up with it at all times. Yeah, it was a bit of a soft opening on Friday because, you know, yes, like you mentioned, there not everyone, I don't know, maybe two thirds of the teams, I wish I had an exact number, were in action this weekend in, in some form or fashion. But it was less than that on Friday because there was so much weather that pushed games to, to Saturday and, and off of opening day. So Friday was a nice soft landing spot, uh, which I kind of, in some ways, was disappointed by because like there wasn't any college baseball on TV until two o'clock. There, there was nothing, you know, usually on opening day, you'd get minimally a noon Eastern and usually you'd get something even ahead of that um, at, at a 10 or a, an 11 in the morning. Uh, and, and instead we, we, it was just a very, very slow rollout, but that did make it easier to track. And then yes, Saturday things, things really started picking up from there. And it was, it wound up being uh, a very exciting eventful weekend of college baseball. There's a new top 25 at baseballamerica.com, And there's a new number one already Florida, which uh, you know, was opening a brand new ballpark in Gainesville. We, we thought that, that was, you know, going to be very exciting. And then, you know, they're playing Miami and you add the rivalry element to it and, and everything else. And, and that becomes just a, a huge opening weekend series. And if you listen to our podcast last week, previewing the weekend, Joe and I both said that we thought Florida was going to, to win the series. Well, that's not what happened. Miami won. They, uh, they, they won the rivalry series for the first time since 2014. Uh, for good measure, UCLA which was ranked number two in the preseason top 25. It lost its opening weekend series to San Francisco and Texas tech went 0 and two in the first two games of uh, the tournament in Arlington. And all of that meant that there was a, a wide open spot at the top of the top 25 after the first weekend of the season for the second year in a row. And Ole Miss is very happy to occupy that number one spot now for the first time in program history after an impressive start down in Arlington, they're two and zero. We'll say this a few more times on the podcast. There's still games today, and the State Farm College Baseball Showdown in Arlington is one of them. So we'll see what Ole Miss does, being number one uh, in a hurry. But we, uh, we we have this new top twenty-five. We're very excited to talk about that and to talk about you know just the the various games from around the country. Uh, this weekend. So Joe, th- there's, there are a lot of places we can start. Um, to me though, the, the two big things here are Miami upsetting Florida and what Ole Miss has done so far in Arlington. So where, where do you want to start this? I think we should start with, with Florida and Miami and full disclosure, I was going to, to atone for the fact that, you know, we, uh, really downplayed Miami's chances, even though kind of at the end, we circled back on like, you know, but this, this could be a competitive series. You know, Miami does have the talent to get it done. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about why it couldn't happen. So to atone for that, what I had planned on doing was to make up for it. I was going to do a full throated C A N E S Canes chant. (laughs) Um, However, my wife is on a call in the other room. 
uh, with some, you know, some big bosses at, at her job. And so that probably would not be the kind of background noise she's looking for in an important meeting. So I will not be doing the C-A-N-E-S Keynes chant, although maybe at a podcast to come, I'll uh, give them something like that. But hopefully the listeners can just imagine you throwing up the U. Yeah, there you go. Just do that. I'm actually wearing a turnover chain right now, too. Is that uh, still a thing? I think they do. Yeah, they do a new one every year, I think. I think it's kind of a big okay. deal that they kind of have like a new version for each for each season. And, you know, I got to say, I think it speaks to the how, how good an idea the turnover chain was in its inception, that there's been a lot of um, copycats of that in college football. And the turnover chain is one of the ones that has really kind of stuck. So I think it speaks to the, that that was a good idea. A lot of the copycats, however, were, were not. And they turnover were just, backpack. Right. Just for one example. Yes. <laughs> so... Uh, but no, I, the, the Florida Miami series, you know, you and I talked yesterday offline and I said, you know, with the exception of the Sunday game, which, you know, Miami jumps out to a really quick lead on Hunter Barco, not a great day for Hunter Barco. And then Florida actually does a really nice job clawing back in, hits like a bunch of Adam balls in the last couple innings of the game. You know, there's a line drive double play to first. And the, I think it was the eighth where if that ball's two feet to either side, it might tie the game. You know, there, there was some of that late, so could have could have gone a different direction. And, and it seemed like this is the way that series goes as Miami loses that game in heartbreak. It seems like the, the logical endpoint of this rivalry being heartbreaking for Miami. But so take that comeback out of it. And then if you had role reversed Florida in Miami with how the first two games went and then the, the beginning of the third game, and you told me that was the way it was going to play out with those roles reversed, I would have believed you because we've we've read that story before. You know, we've seen the movie where Miami wins a game, whether it's on Friday or on Saturday, and it feels like a pretty comprehensive win. And okay, you feel pretty good. And then they lose the other game in extra innings in heartbreaking fashion. And they were oh so close. And then in the third game, Florida just boat races them. So it felt like that's actually, we were heading for a complete role reversal. Florida had making that comeback kind of upset that apple cart a little bit, but um, I don't, I also don't want to downplay how, well Miami played in, in certain aspects certainly the the offense showed a little bit you know when you're getting good production from guys like Tony Jenkins and uh, Christian Del Castillo the Seton Hall transfer and I think Raymond Gill who had a really tough year last year was was productive this weekend uh, clutch in a lot of ways I think that speaks uh, highly of, of what the Miami offense is is capable of and the depth they might have there um, however I think you you will agree that in a lot of ways Miami just kind of didn't play quite as sloppy as Florida in a lot of ways, which is surprising that Florida, you know, kind of a sloppy game for Florida. And that's kind of what made the difference because it just, after Friday, when Florida played good defense, pitched pretty well, I mean, the bullpen got a little wonky at the end and it made it the game, that made that game closer than it truly was. But after that, I mean, Florida three errors Friday and Saturday, bullpen meltdown on Saturday, really bad start from Hunter Barco on Sunday. Like it just did not look anything like the Florida team I expected to see this weekend. So I guess going back to what we said coming into the weekend, I, when I brought us back to the idea that, you know, Miami did lose three close games in this series a year ago. It's not inconceivable that they could go up to Gainesville and win. What I said was they needed a better offensive performance. They scored eight runs in this series at Mark Light last year. Well, they they definitely brought the offense with them to Gainesville. They they course corrected on that in, in a in a big way, and you know that that was really significant for for the Canes to do it 
against Florida pitching, which, you know, we still think this weekend aside that this is one of the best, if not the best pitching staffs in the entire country. So for Miami to swing the bats the way they did this weekend, that was huge because this is a much uh, younger, inexperienced, I guess, pitching staff. The, the rotation is completely new. Daniel Fetterman is a veteran on Friday night, but he has been mostly a reliever throughout his career. Now he's being asked to be a starter. And then Miami through two freshmen, Alejandro Rosario and Victor Medeiros, who are both incredibly highly ranked coming in as, as freshmen. Uh, they were both top, uh, top 75 draft prospects a year ago but they are still freshmen. There's going to be some growing pains there. And then with Fetterman moving out of the bullpen, there's some new roles to be had in in relief. Uh, So there was just a lot new about this pitching staff. And while they pitched well throughout the weekend, uh, the Florida offense definitely got its runs in and it's a really good offense and it's to be expected. But Miami is going to need its offense to keep clicking. That's the strength of this team right now. By the end of the season, maybe it'll be a little more balanced. But right now, like the clear strength is an offense that features Alex Torral, Adrian Del Castillo, Jordan Lala, like Villar, Yohandi uh, Morales looked amazing as a freshman. You can just keep running down. It's a really deep lineup and they needed it to, to produce. And that's what they did. So on the Miami side, to me, that is like the number one thing that stood out to me when I talked to Gino Damari yesterday, his other thing beyond the offense, which he gave a lot of credit to his assistant coach, Noberto Lopes, um, and just for, for helping Miami get it worked out right now. The, the other thing Gino mentioned though, was just that the finishing of this team, the last few years, especially in 2019, his first, as a head coach, we didn't really get a good sense for what the 2020 team was in terms of how they were going to close out games and series. Although I will say it didn't go well against Florida last year. It's been a bugaboo. And so for them to show the fight that they showed this weekend and then come back and, and finish the games, finish the series, get a series win in a, in a rivalry that they haven't won the series in since 2014, that really speaks a lot about where Miami is just kind of in a mental place going into this season. So big time for them on on the Florida side, I wrote on Friday that if this is where Florida is right now, they are like, you should be any, any other team should be really, kind of concerned about how good the Gators will be at the end of the season, because this is a team that has an incredible amount of talent, but still has a ton of growth ahead of it. And that take maybe looks a little worse today than it did on Friday night, but they were so close to winning the series on Saturday. They had a three run lead in the ninth inning in game two. Uh, if they just close that game out, they win the series and I can go back and, and feel very confident about saying like, look, if this is where Florida is now with all this talent and all this room to grow and, oh, by the way, they're still beating a team like Miami, which is very talented in itself, like, oh boy, look out for once they, they sort through some of the, 
the early season issues that they and every other team clearly has. And, you know, I still feel good about that, but I, I suppose that's also a bit of a charitable take that like, look, this team that we gassed up as the clear national title favorites, like they are not where they need to be right now. Um, defensively, it was a bad weekend. That was true across the sport. However, I don't want to harp on it on Florida because defense around the country was not good this weekend. And uh, frankly, that's not that surprising. A similar thing happened over the summer. So it's going to take these teams a little while to, to get the, the gloves back, I think. Defense wasn't good. Uh, the bullpen, which we lauded as being the best in the country, clearly hasn't worked things out. Franco Alamon couldn't find the strike zone in the ninth inning on Saturday. I felt like he might have been getting squeezed a little bit, but regardless, it was it was ugly in terms of his the way he lost his control. I was a little surprised that Sully stuck with him throughout the ninth. I after the game, he said that he did that because you know that if that's going to be Alamon's role going forward, he has to learn how to get out of those jams and what's it going to do for his confidence if he goes out and pulls him while he's struggling like that. And, uh, you know, Sully knows a lot more about managing pitching staffs than I do. Um, so I'll, I'll defer to him on that for sure. But it was just a little surprising to see a Florida pitcher struggle throwing strikes that much and then not have the next pitcher come in. Um, Typically, there's a little less patience, I feel like. And some of that is just that it's opening weekend and Sully's trying to figure things out. Um, you know, I, he does this all the time early in the season, gives his players a lot of leash and figures out what they can and can't do and then tightens it up from there. So, you know, it, it's also a little wonky that this was an opening weekend series because this is uh, a huge series, but it didn't seem like uh, you know, Sully was going to manage it any differently just because it was a rivalry. He's still looking at it as like, look, we need to figure out what we have here and prepare uh, for SEC play and beyond. So, you know, there's a lot there, Joe. I don't know if you want to want to go off of any of that. If you have more you want to say, uh, I, I definitely I watched a lot of this series over the weekend and I, I clearly have thoughts. Well, yeah, there was I mean, there's a lot to it. Like it just had a lot of layers I would say quickly too on the, I don't, you know, Florida, I think will end up focusing more on Florida's bullpen struggles because they were so like clear in the moment, you know, with, with, with Franco Alamon, what happened to him on, on Saturday. And then even on, on Friday, which let Miami get a little bit back into it, but you know, Miami is kind of in the same boat where, I mean, outside of Carson Palmquist, which Florida had its own version of Carson Palmquist. And that was Christian Scott, who was pretty good both times he threw but Carson Palmquist was excellent. Uh, ben Wanger got some big outs, but like his innings were kind of like white knuckle. Um, they were not the cleanest of innings. Um, you know, he's an experienced guy you trust. Like he's one of their older players. And so I, I assume he'll continue. But this is his first year in Miami and in the ACC. He spent most right. of his, spent four years at Yale and then transferred to USC last year. And now is in Miami. Yeah. And was, you know, was, was pretty good last year at USC, but was more of a hitter. Like he was actually a little bit more of an impact player on offense than he was last year than pitching. I mean, it was just a small sample pitching. I think he saved a bunch of games, but it was all pretty short stints. But anyway, so I think Miami has questions to answer too, bullpen wise, because, you know, like I said, Palmquist, okay, great. But outside of that, like you looked at what happened on Sunday where it just felt like nobody was really 
you know, and some of that is just Florida was clearly feeling it at the end of that game and they were going to make their comeback and that was just going to happen. But every game was a little bit like that where Miami was just kind of desperately cycling through relievers, trying to find somebody to settle things down. And it felt like they really didn't find a ton uh, yet. So, and again, it's, it's a young, relatively young pitching staff, a lot of guys in new roles. So there's, there is time for that, but I think it would be easy to kind of say, well, Florida's bullpen faltered and Miami was a little bit steadier. And I just don't think it's, it's quite that simple. Miami had their own struggles out there for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a good point. And both of these teams have a ton of guys that they just have to sort through and figure out who they can trust in what roles and who fits best where. And that's going to take some time. And, and that's another thing that that you heard from around the country, just the managers or the coaches are, are having to manage a little more than they're, they're used to because the rosters are deeper. And right now they, you know, they didn't get to see fall games against outside competition. Uh, everyone had a little bit of a strange fall, just even a baseline, even if they, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you didn't see fall games against outside competition. So even if you revert back to that, like your fall was still a little bit wonky at best. And you know, so it, it's just going to take a little bit of time to, to figure all of this out in the best of circumstances. And then, you know, you look at a Miami that has a, you know, just a, a lot of new faces on the pitching staff. It, it's it's going to take probably even a little more time. But for Miami, can't say enough about what this series win means that at least just mentally, um, you know, I, I I don't know what it feels like to not beat your rifle since 2014 in the series, but I, I'm, I'm sure that that weighs on the program uh, to an extent. And they, they now have, uh, have at least broken that streak and can part of Gino Damari's remit. This is true of, of Mike Martin Jr. at Florida State as well. Part of what they need to do is to find a way to get the rivalry with Florida back on more level ground because the Gators, and, and this shouldn't be a surprise, just given the way the Gators dominated so much of the sport for the last decade. Uh, I mean, you can make a case that they were the team of the 2010s. Um, the case is also to be made for Vanderbilt, but it's probably one of those two teams. And, and you know, I don't want to get sidetracked on the, is, is it South Carolina? We've probably had this discussion on the podcast. The point is that, you know, Florida has been one of the best teams in college baseball for the last decade plus. So it should be no surprise then that Florida has also owned that state for the last decade plus. And Miami and Florida State need, need to find a way to stop that. And maybe this was the start of something for Miami. Maybe it wasn't. But minimally, I, I think that they have to be waking up today feeling a little bit better about where they are having gone up and, and won that series in Gainesville. All right, we're going to move on from here, get to some talk about that college baseball showdown in Arlington and uh, what the Ole Miss Rebs did to, to move up to number one in the rankings. But first, check this out. Okay, Joe, Ole Miss is the kind of standout from the college baseball showdown just because they are 2-0 and and now number one in the top 25, but can't ignore what Arkansas has done going 2-0 there to, to start the weekend as well. Um, I think you were a little more locked into this than I was. I was a little more locked into Florida and Miami, 
Uh, we'll get into why that might have been later on. But first, what what have you thought of what Ole Miss has done down there in Arlington? Yeah, really impressive stuff. Kind of just a continuation of what we saw from Ole Miss last year. My lasting impression of Ole Miss from last year was what they did at the uh, LeClaire Classic. Now, that was not their their final weekend of the season. Next, It was next to last, but came away really impressed with what they did out there where they were clearly the class of, of that tournament, which included teams not as good as, as these they're seeing this weekend, but still uh, still pretty good, pretty good competition there. Um, but I think it's, uh, we talked about this a little bit leading up to the weekend, right? It's hard to pin down exactly why teams have success or don't have success in, in tournaments like this. Um, you know, and, and we can talk about that a little bit when we start to talk about Texas Tech is 0-2, for example, and, and how it, it's just kind of hard to imagine that, you know, but there, there, there are reasons for it, but also it kind of feels a little bit random sometimes. But I think what Ole Miss gives you is, is a certain level of balance where they can kind of win games in a lot of different ways. And I think that's what you, what you've kind of seen where, you know, their game against TCU, which is the first game they played, it turns into a bullpen game, like in five minutes, you know, Nikhazy gets hit around a little bit, walks some guys. He's, he can't get out the second inning on the other side. They knock, TCU's Johnny Ray out after three innings. So turns into a bullpen game. Okay, no problem. Jackson Kimbrell, Drew McDaniel, Taylor Broadway, they're going to throw the last seven and a third innings without allowing, you know, TCU to really get much of anything going. Um, You know, it was a little bit similar in the second game where uh, the bullpen had to throw some innings late to try to hold on to a lead. But in that game, they got a little more from Gunnar Hoagland where it was like, okay, now we're going to win a game because our guy really just kind of shoves. So Gunnar Hoagland, gave up a few runs, but struck out 11 in five and a third innings. And while maybe you wondered a little bit about the offense, if you were concerned about Anthony Servidio or about Tyler Keenan being gone um, from the lineup, you you had to like what you saw from a guy like Jacob Gonzalez, who came in and has immediately announced himself as, okay, this, this guy has the look of um, the next big star in, in this program. So, um, is just a really solid weekend. I mean, nothing really super stands out about it. They're not blowing teams out, but that's more than you can say for a lot of the rest of the field here. Even, you know, Arkansas, who is also 2-0 in this tournament, I've come away more impressed with what Ole Miss has done versus with what Arkansas has done because, you know, Arkansas wins just an ugly, ugly, weird, wild game. You have to give their offense credit for winning that game against Texas Tech 13-9 because they, they score five runs in the ninth to go from nine, eight down to 13, nine up. And that's impressive in its own way. And they pitch well in the Sunday game against Texas, but you know, Texas has been through a lot between not having been able to practice for much of the last week. Plus now because of the weather situation in central Texas, it was already had offensive questions. Like I'm not taking anything away from guys like Peyton Paulette or Caleb Bolden who pitched really well on Sunday, but it remains to be seen like how, how impressed we can really be with that over Texas. So if you're asking me, which is, is more impressive, I, I think I'd probably go Ole Miss just because they've kind of shape shifted their way to winning uh, these first two games. They don't have anybody who's just pitching out of their minds necessarily. We don't, there's not anybody who, you know, uh, went eight for 10 over the weekend and really carried the offense. They're getting a lot from a lot of different places. And I think that really bodes well for, its ability to have some staying power as the number one team in the country, whether or not they stay number one long-term is is a different question, but this strikes me as a team that's uh, not, not going to just fade. Yeah. So the thing that stands out to me from Ole Miss is that their offense has been fine this weekend. Like I, 
if you go look at some numbers, they aren't great. I don't want to, you know, impugn them though. They're facing really good pitching staffs uh, that, that in these games down there. The starting rotation was supposed to be the really strong point about this Rebs team. Not the reason why they were number four, but if you told me pick the best thing about Ole Miss, I probably would have said the rotation. Well, Nikhazy, who has been one of the most reliable pitchers in college baseball the last couple of years, that's a guy that was on the collegiate national team in 2019 after his freshman season, uh, he has one of his worst starts on, on Saturday. And then Hoagland, who's a preseason All-American, uh, potential first-round pick, probably projected first-round pick, actually, not, not even just potential. He, he really stands out because of the way he controls the baseball. He walks three guys in five and a third. Like, yeah, he struck out 11, and that's great. But, like, his whole thing is that he doesn't walk people. Like, that's that's been his thing going back to high school. I think he walked, like, three guys in his final two seasons of high school. Something something absolutely crazy like that. Maybe it was three walks in his senior year. In Florida high school, not in, not in some, like, lesser high school baseball state. In Florida high school baseball. So that was surprising. But, you know, what, what's been awesome, though, is, is their bullpen. Bullpen has been fantastic. Taylor Broadway was fantastic on Saturday. And things got a little dicey at the end of Sunday's game, but they got it done. And, you know, now they're looking at, you know, through two games, Braden Forsyth and Taylor Broadway, their top two relievers, two veterans at the back of the bullpen, both have saves. And, you know, things look really good back there when you consider – what Kimbrell and Broadway and Forsyth have done so far. And the fact that Mike Bianco has, has given some of the, the younger guys a shot back there, I think is encouraging as well. Uh, so to me, that's, that's the, the standout thing about Ole Miss. In addition to Jacob Gonzalez, who has been fantastic. He was Ole Miss's best hitter in the fall statistically. And that's, uh, that's carrying over. Only Hayden Dunhurst has better numbers right now than, uh, than Gonzalez through two games. And eventually, you know, the rest of the lineup's going to get going. I don't even want to say that they're not going right now. Again, it's it's tough competition and it's two games. So I, I think that it, it's very impressive what Ole Miss has done. They've now won 18 straight games going back to last year. That's a program record that previously dated to 1960. And they're now number one in the Baseball America Top 25 for the first time in the rankings history, and those go back 40 years. So it's a, it's a, it's a crazy, impressive run that Ole Miss is on here. And, you know, I mean, we, we thought they were the SEC West favorites coming into the year, thought they were Omaha, you know, contenders slash favorites. Uh, it's, a, it's a big-time look to to start the season like that and to back up those kinds of predictions. You know, the we I started to talk about it a little bit, but Texas Tech being 0-2 is a little bit of a, a surprise for me because kind of what Ole Miss has done the first couple of days is, is kind of what I thought Texas Tech could do. And it's why I feel like they can play well in tournaments like this because they um, you know, sometimes the games get uglied up, but they, they typically find a way to win those games. They nearly did against Ole Miss. You, you alluded to it, but the Sunday game was like, had Texas Tech pulled that comeback off, that is like a, a kind of a stereotypical Texas Tech win where it's like, they don't really look like they should win the game for much of the, much of the day, but 
offense kind of figures it out and, and comes back in the end. And it's, you know, it's a lot of got a lot of role players, just, just doing little things here and there to, to get them there. But um, Ole Miss held them at bay. But I think you saw on Friday in the 13, nine lost Arkansas for Texas tech. I think you kind of saw, you know, you and I, <laughs> you and I talk about Texas tech's kind of mix and match approach on the mound. And sometimes we talk about it in a positive light, like, Hey, you know, look at how many just like, big time, you know, big arms, like guys who can, you know, mid nineties with big breaking balls or what have you, they can just throw at you guy after guy after guy until they find someone who is feeling it. And then sometimes we talk about it derisively where we say like, Oh, you just don't know what to expect with Texas tech. And I think you saw in that first game against Arkansas, kind of what happens when they're cycling through guys and they just cannot for the life of them, find the guy, you know, you, they got a good start from, you know, the, the Seton Hill transfer, Patrick Monteverde. I mean, four it's innings. Seton Hill, not Seton Hall. Correct, yes. D3 in, in uh, Pittsburgh. I actually opposed to the Pirates of, of New Jersey. Indeed. Yeah, I, I actually had a thought when I was – so I watched the start of, of that game, and then I, I ended up flipping to some other stuff once it kind of got uglied up and the pace slowed to a crawl. But So I was watching him start that game, and, you know, he's pitching in, in Globe Life Field in Arlington against – um, you know, a, a team in Arkansas that's a national title contender. And, and so then out of curiosity, I was like, man, this is a big moment for me. And out of curiosity, I went and like just Googled what Seton Hills like home baseball field looks like. And I imagine that like a year ago he was pitching on that mound and now he's pitching at Globe Life Field against Arkansas. Just amazing kind of um, transition there in, in, in that young man's life. And, and he threw the ball well. But after that, oh boy, you know, Brandon Birdsell really struggled with his, with his control. Ryan Sublette, who's been kind of a steady Eddie pitcher for them four runs in two innings and um, Andrew Devine five innings and in two or five runs in two thirds of an inning. It just was not super pretty for Texas tech. And then, you know, Devine ends up being the guy who kind of wears it, you know, where, where Arkansas, you know, puts those five runs on him in the ninth inning, but it just was not a super pretty um, game there. Now the second game was a little bit different, but the, the troubling part for Texas Tech is like, okay, Brennan Gurton threw a good game. And then, you know, a couple guys after him threw good innings of relief, but it was Micah Dallas who ended up wearing it. And that's not great either because they're really going to need him, whether it's in a extended relief role as, a, as an opener or as just a legit starter, uh, they're going to need him at some point and, and he'll figure it out, I'm sure. But it, it certainly was not a great first impression this season that, you know, he, he allowed a five run inning, three of those runs unearned. So that's worth noting, but it was just not a, a good outing for, for him in any uh, stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I I don't know what to make of Texas Tech right now. I don't know if we got overexcited and ranking them number three. I don't know if this is just, you know, they had a tough week. I don't I don't know the I imagine there was a lot of snow in Lubbock, but I don't I don't know. And I, or, or is this just a case of like, look at all the, the new things on the pitching staff. Like it's just going to take a while. It takes Texas tech sometimes a while anyway. And like now look at all of the new toys they have on the pitching staff. Look at how they have to replace the top two starters. Like what are they going to do? I, I don't know where, where we're at with, with the red Raiders. It's also possible. It was just, two tough games they'll come back they'll win this third game and like okay they had a losing weekend on opening weekend it happens so it's really hard to for me to you know kind of try and figure out where the red raiders are at right now and i 
I honestly don't even want to spend that much energy trying to do it. I, I just want to see what it looks like moving forward because the one certainty I have about Texas Tech is that whatever it looks like right now, at least on the pitching staff, this is not the way it's going to look in April. So if we could just fast forward through Texas Tech figuring out how it's going to line up its its pitching staff, uh, that would that would be great. It would save me a whole lot of headache. Uh, in terms of trying to figure out where to rank them and, and what their their ultimate potential is. I guess we'll, we'll quickly kind of round it out here. Texas, we've talked about a little bit, and we've talked about the reasons why maybe they've struggled a little bit. It was always going to be a pitching over offense team, most likely, but, you know, you don't get a great start from time Madden to start it off. Um, you know, you're, you're shifting things around because Pete Hansen's not ready to be the starter that you kind of hoped he would be for for. Uh, COVID protocol reasons and just not being as, as prepped as, as they would like him to be. So that threw things off a little bit for the Longhorns and they've struggled to just score runs. And so um, it's been a tough weekend for them, but just getting back into the swing of things, I think they'll, they'll get better. Dustin McComas on, on Twitter um, who covers the Longhorns locally, you know, talked about on Thursday or it was Wednesday, but you know, he was adv- maybe saying that if I were the Longhorns, I don't know that I would play this weekend because they're just not, they can't be physically prepared. And so, um, now in light of that, I think they've actually done a pretty decent job competing. Um, but, it, but it's clear that they've been uh, just a little step off this weekend. I've been pretty impressed with Mississippi state. They did lose a game to TCU, which I think was a, a really nice win for TCU. Uh, they got a double play ball in the ninth inning with the bases loaded and, and one out to seal that three, two win. But, you know, Mississippi state is short Eric Sarantola this weekend. Um, but they've got it down the mound. They've 250 ERA for the weekend. Landon Sims did basically what Taylor Broadway did for Ole Miss, but for Mississippi State in that Texas game, struck out. 10 he did it better, runs. to be clear. Yeah, he was dominant. You know, Taylor Broadway. Don't, don't, did a don't nice add job. us, Hale State fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Landon Sims was nothing short of four no hit innings, 10 strikeouts, you know, no walks. I mean, it just an incredible, incredible outing there. But, you know, Christian McLeod was, was pretty solid, gave up some hits, but, but did what he needed to do in the, in the first start. And, Offensively, if you if you look through the prism of offenses in this tournament, with with the notable exception, I guess, of Arkansas's big explosion, and I guess to a certain degree, Texas Tech on the first day, like it's it it hasn't been the most offensive week in there. And so they're in through that prism, they're actually hitting the ball pretty well in the grand scheme of things. So I've actually, even though they're one and one, I, I've come away fairly impressed with with Mississippi State and, and what their upside is, especially once they get a full uh, rotation back in the mix. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that interesting to to see what they and tcu have going forward particularly uh, i like you don't know what to make of texas right now just it, it was a really hard week you saw the pictures from austin um I, I don't know i don't know what the right call was in terms of playing not playing um i certainly understand it either way so they went they did it i'm sure they'll be better for it even though the record right now doesn't reflect that. Um, Joe, I, you and I had this conversation slightly offline, but I, I want to bring it to, to a larger audience here. Typically, you know, throughout my, my, my career in this job, I have not really missed the big tournament, the big, big tournament really ever in, in the last five years. You know, I've been at the Minute Maids. I, you know, when the the tournament in LA is is the big deal, I'm there. Um, this year, though, I I'm not a Globe Life, obviously. Um, 
and I kind of found it found it a little off my radar, frankly. And that was surprising because in previous years, whether it's like the MLB four tournament or, you know, the, the, the Shriners college classic in Houston, I've just always felt like, Oh, this is the biggest thing going. And like, yeah, this is, this is absolutely it. Like this is, this is what college baseball is paying attention to. And if there was ever a tournament like that, it was definitely this one, which had six of the top 15 teams playing on opening weekend. And yet so many times this weekend, I found myself not watching these games, watching something else. So I have a few theories as to why that might be. It's probably a combination of all of them, but just wanted to, to run them by you and, and see what you think, because you know, you've been both at some of these big tournaments and, and also watching them more as a fan from at home. So maybe you can help me understand why this happened to me. So the number one reason I think that this happened is because they delayed it until Saturday. And so by the time it started, I was just already into weekend mode and they felt like they were a day behind. And I, you know, I was already invested in other things. And now here this new thing was coming along and I was like, well, I got, I got other things here. I don't need this. And, you know, so they just kind of put themselves in a little bit of an attention hole that way. Number two, you had to leave the ESPN app to go find this thing. You know, it being on Flow Sports meant that the ecosystem I was watching it in was a little bit different. So that that was maybe a, a little bit strange. And and then you know, th- those are those are probably the the two big ones for me. Uh, but you know, the, the, there also may just be something to like the fact that you know I, I got sucked into a very competitive series between Florida and Miami and Florida has a number one next to its name. So, you know, when, when the number one team is, is playing very competitive games, like I just feel compelled to watch them because you, know, you that, that, that feels hyper important that look, the number one team might, might lose this weekend. Uh, I, I need to, I need to watch and, and be ready to, to write about that more than I need to you know focus on something that is, is just frankly really sprawling. And, and I feel how sprawling it is when I'm at the games, but then you, you realize the fact that you have to watch three of these games, three of these really high profile games in succession from home. Like, honestly, that's, that's even worse than, uh, than, than being at the games. I felt like just in terms of keeping your attention for, for all that time. So all of those reasons I feel like contributed to this falling behind in, in terms of my like TV pecking order, but you know, I, I don't know what to make of that, but that, that, that's where I was this weekend. I think they're all valid. I think, I think you're right. That it's just a lot of contributing death by a thousand cuts situation, but I think all of those are, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with any of what you said. I think it all contributes. Um, I will say, uh, so the, the ESPN thing is having to go specifically to flow sports. Like, unless you're a, a, just a fan of one of these programs where you weren't going to miss it anyway, like that is an extra step. And it is easy. I know from experience, like let's say a Florida Miami game ends, it's real easy on that ESPN app to just hit the back button and then scroll whatever's on. And so you're right that having to go back out to flow sports is like one extra step that kind of can create some friction there with you continuing to watch to watch that tournament. I, by the way, was just quickly, I was, I was pretty impressed by the production at flow sports. Like this is my first experience with flow sports. And I know their flow sports has its detractors. Um, it is a little bit pricey, you know, if you're going month to month, it's 30 bucks a month, 
Um, and also like, I, I heard a lot of people that kind of complained about the, the quality of it, but I found, you know, and, and it's, it's different from tournament to tournament. There's not going to be as much production quality behind the snowbird baseball tournament in Florida as there is in the, the state farm college baseball showdown. So that's part of it. But um, I, I came away pretty impressed. I, with the I'm interested. So it, it worked all weekend. The, the CAA yeah. has all of its conference games on flow sports. And I'll be interested to see what the quality of those games is like. Yeah. Yeah. I would presume it's pretty locally driven though, too. Probably, right? like yeah. It's kind of whatever equipment, this whatever equipment the school has available and whatever production resource the school has available will drive a lot of that. But, but also like, you know, our, our lives are very app driven these days. And so if the, if the app just works like it's supposed to, like you get, you score a lot of points with me and like two flow sports is credit. It never crashed on me. Like I never had like these weird buffering issues or lagging or really anything like it. And, and some of that is just based on how good your internet is. I get that, but the app itself worked pretty doggone well. So I was pretty pleased with, with that. But the other things I would say is, you know, I've, so using the Minute Maid tournament as the, as the example, I went to that tournament for a lot of years as a fan. I was paying money to be there. And yet my friends and I who would go to this tournament when we were in high school and in college, we even kind of joked about how, you know, the middle game kind of gets short shrift in a lot of ways because we'd be all excited for the first game. We pay a lot of attention to it. And then our energy would just inevitably lag like in the middle game. And then we'd kind of have to snap out of it, you know, as that game is wrapping up to get ready for whatever the, the night game was mentally. And I just think that happens when there's when you've got those three games stacked on top of each other and oh by the way you alluded to it you know the defense isn't necessarily the crispest uh they're being super careful with pitchers so there's a lot of pitching changes even in the games that were low scoring there were a lot of pitching changes the pace was just not good in a lot of cases and so I just I think it's hard to like watch those three games and pay close attention to them stacked on top of each other like that because I think the other reality is I am super guilty of this, so I will raise my hand on this one. But I also think sometimes it's it's easy to convince yourself that I'm going to I'm going to pay really close attention to this tournament this weekend. And maybe I don't watch all of all nine games, but I'm going to pay close attention to like four or five of them. And then I'll zoom in and out on the others while I'm watching other stuff. And the reality of the situation is it's just hard to do that. Like it, it's hard to really devote your attention at the at a super level of de- a super high level of detail for multiple games stacked on top of each other that day. So if you're watching Florida Miami super close, it's just going to be hard to flip over to a different game and pay that much attention for three and a half more hours on top of that. So I'm guilty of kind of being disappointed in myself that certain things just fly by my radar, but I just think it's almost uh, beyond human human capability in a lot of cases for us to really pay that level of attention to multiple games every single day. Yeah, I, I think there's there's probably a lot to that. And, you know, it, it's three games a day is a lot. It's a lot when you're in the stadium. It's a lot when you're at home. Uh, it, it, it is just a lot. I, it's a it's a fun tournament. I'm glad that it was as uh, it was as great as it was in terms of the teams in the field. But it uh, it is a lot. And, and I it, it felt ev- like even more than it would have if I was there, probably because if I was there, I would not have been anywhere close to us locked in on Florida and Miami as, uh, as I wound up being. Well, it's also like uh, when you're, when you're there, you also can't, even if you put headphones on, which we've all working those tournaments, we've all done that where you put headphones on because you're trying to focus on something else. You're trying to write something or whatever, but even that with that, like you can't not at least peripherally know what's going on in the game in front of you. I don't know about you, but it's real easy for me. Like if I'm focused on something else on my laptop, and I've got a game on the TV, 
like if I'm trying to focus more on the laptop, like I'll turn the volume down a few ticks and then you look up and it's like three innings later. You just can't really do that when you're there because crowd noise and PA noise and the people around you making, making some noise or moving around. Like, so you can really just kind of ignore things a lot easier when you're, when you're here versus when it's happening right in front of you. Oh yeah. I have a mute button and I am not afraid to use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that yeah. doesn't exist when I'm, when I'm at a game. Much as you might like it to at times, uh, it, it, it does not. Looking at you, Vanderbilt. Um, let's move on from here. I mentioned at the top briefly that UCLA lost to San Francisco in a series. That was weird. That was, that was a surprise. Uh, San Francisco was 9-8 and eight last season. Now, they were probably a little better than that record indicates. They got hot at the end of the season. They won a series against Cal. Now, Cal wasn't good particularly at all last season, but they did win a series against a Pac-12 team last year and won like six of their last seven games. But the Dons were picked by West Coast Conference coaches. They, they tied for fifth in the preseason coaches poll. So they weren't expected to be good by their own conferences coaches this year. We didn't pick them any better than that when Joe did the West Coast Conference preview. So not like we saw this coming any more than, than the coaches did, but they go out, they win twice at Jackie Robinson Stadium. They won on Friday night. They come back, uh, UCLA comes back and, and takes the, the rubber game. And then San Francisco wins the third game. None of the three games were particularly close. They were all pretty one-sided generally. Um, I, it was kind of a comprehensive series win by the Dons from, from what I can, can establish. You know, it, uh, it, it's not what we thought at all. UCLA was going to be like uh, if you listen to the podcast like a couple of weeks ago with John Savage, obviously he didn't think his team was like uh, was likely to lose on opening weekend either. I don't, I didn't get that vibe. UCLA was without Zach Petway as Savage told us he's a little behind. They're being a little cautious with him coming off of some off season injury stuff, but just being down Petway should not have been the difference in this series. And uh, I, I'm not even, saying that it was like I San Francisco just seemed like they were a little bit better. It was a weird weekend out West. It, you, you can look through a whole lot of results and, and get kind of confused as to what happened out there. Uh, so maybe things are just, there's just more parody out West than we realized. I, I knew there was going to be some, I didn't know it was going to be preseason pack 12 favorite getting upset by middle of the pack preseasons picked West Coast Conference team. Um, And it's opening weekend. I I don't want to jump to crazy conclusions here either. Teams have bad weekends. They get mad. They get magnified on opening weekend. But at the same time, this was not the UCLA team I signed up for when I picked them to go to Omaha uh, or when we ranked them number two in the country. Yeah, that the UCLA series loss to San Francisco was probably just the most shocking result of the weekend because while we were surprised Miami won the series against Florida, it was Miami, a top 15 Miami team winning a series against Florida. Like, okay. Well, and what do you do with the records in a rivalry series, Joe? That's right. You throw them out. That's right. That's absolutely right. Great point. And, and you can you. throw the rankings out too while you're at it. That's right. Yeah. Great point by you. Um, but <laughs> the thing about it is like, yeah, like having Zach Petway not available for UCLA was, it hurt because 
you know, you turn that start over to Jared Karros and he was not particularly good. He wasn't awful, but it wasn't particularly good. But it went beyond that, to your point. Jesse Bergen in the second game was exactly what you needed from him. Great start. Uh, but outside of that, nothing really went according to plan. I mean, um, you know, Nick Nestrini was just kind of okay. Like he dominated in the strikeouts, but you know, the San Francisco hit him around a little bit. I think the, 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 the strangest thing is that San Francisco like tagged Kyle Mora and like nobody hits Kyle Mora. Like that's just, you know, he's as steady as anybody, you know, in the country in terms of, in terms of bullpen pitchers. And then offensively UCLA hit 218. Now you can't blame Matt McLean. He went five for 11 this weekend. But other than that, pretty slow weekend offensively for UCLA to, to hit 218 against San Francisco. And I know this is going to be easy for me to say right now, but I, San Francisco was a team when I was doing the WCC preview that I struggled most with. I think most teams, I'll put an initial order together, and then most teams will move up or down one spot, maybe two after I've kind of written everybody up. And, you know, because it, it's – you give it an initial order. Then after you write the teams up, you can kind of almost see how you really feel about them. And so you move them around a little bit. Well, San Francisco might've moved up and down four spots in, in at various points, because what I will say about them is they do have the pitchers to give you a hard time. And so I think that's kind of what we saw here this weekend in a lot of cases, because they, they do have some arms out there. Um, some guys with, with high velocity, they have a very experienced pitching staff. So, um, I would not have been surprised if this series ended up being low scoring because San Francisco pitched well enough to make it competitive. But the fact that San Francisco, to your point, just completely outplayed them, it seemed like, in the, in the two wins was a, was a big-time surprise to me. And the West Coast in general was kind of bonkers this weekend. And I think the other thing to add on onto the pile, and pardon me if you, you mentioned it, but it's just that I think the West Coast is going to take a while to shake out because of just how disjointed everything on the West Coast has been when you talk about um, – you know, the fall practice, some teams not having it, some teams had it, some teams kind of were in the middle somewhere. And then the same thing with the lead up to the season, uh, you know, and it, it, there are West Coast teams that haven't, plenty of West Coast teams haven't played yet just because of uh, scheduling situations. So I think it's going to take a little while before the West Coast feels normal in terms of what results we're getting, are, are getting spit out because certainly week one was not it in terms of what we expected. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You saw Beyond this, you saw Arizona lose two of three to Ball State. They play a fourth today, so the Wildcats will get a chance to uh, at least split the series. Um, you saw Pepperdine, the West Coast Conference favorite, lose a series uh, to Cal Baptist. Um, UCSB lost on opening day. Arizona State lost on opening day. Both of those teams rebounded to win the series, but you know it, still those were expect to be two of the better teams and, and they lost. Um, I, th I think your point about how difficult the off season was for teams out there is a very important one. Nowhere in the country, I don't think had stricter regulations or more disparate regulations than California going county by county. The thing about that though, at least as, as it pertains to, to UCLA is that, UCLA actually had a fall practice. This wasn't like, you know, a, uh, a Long Beach State, which didn't have a fall practice. Uh, it wasn't like them getting upset. It was, it was a team that, that had one of the more normal falls out that way. 
getting upset. So I don't know what to make of that, but that, that does help explain some of the general strangeness out West. There also, of course, were a lot of transfers around college baseball. And again, this doesn't really affect what happened in Westwood, although uh, San Francisco did bring in five transfers this offseason. But I, if, if there was a significant amount of player movement out West, and there was, then it stands to reason that maybe there's a little more parity going into this season uh, than you, you might ordinarily see. It's one weekend. We can't draw a ton of conclusions. Half of the Big West didn't even play. Um, but right now, this is, uh, this is definitely something to watch. The West Coast, broadly speaking, is already kind of an RPI trouble this year just because of how regionalized the schedules are. RPI already doesn't like how regionalized West Coast schedules are in the best of times. It's going to hate them even more this year. Uh, so again, touched on this before, hopefully the committee can look beyond RPI this year, but if it doesn't, and this is what happens all season long, do not sign up the West coast up for many at large bids. It's just not going to happen if, if this is the way it's going to go down and the committee doesn't cut it a significant amount of slack. So and it deserves the slack, I think. Um, although, if uh, you know, if in one of the few interregional series you have, and it's Ball State, much respect to my alma mater, but it's Ball State coming in, and the team that we picked to be the second best in the Pac-12 can't get it done. Like that, that's not speaking overly well to uh, to the conference either. And you know, I. A couple other wonky results out that way were um, Cal losing a series to Pacific. And Joe, did you catch any of Oregon State this weekend? They lose on Friday. Jordan Wicks shuts them down. No shame in that. He's a preseason All-American for a reason. But then they come back and they score like 40 runs over the next two days against Gonzaga in New Mexico. It was uh, It was kind of a confounding weekend from the Beavers. Yeah, I, I know. I did notice that. Not in. I didn't see like any of it. I didn't see any. Yeah, I watched Friday. I did not watch the next two days. Yeah, but yeah, that's. I mean, we, we had questions about Oregon State's offense, and I guess we'll see. You know uh, what becomes of of Gonzaga and New Mexico, and maybe that gives us some some good um, context later on. But what I will say is that it's all the right guys. You look at the stat sheet, and it's like it's Troy Clanch. Andy Armstrong, and it's Kyler McMahon, and it's Ryan Ober, and it's like, okay, well, those those were the guys we kind of assumed would, would be leading the way if they if they were able to get it done. So I think that was a real positive weekend in that regard for, for Oregon State, and kind of feels like maybe they moved into pole position for now um, in terms of like maybe they're the team that that kind of works their way into the postseason discussion from the Pac-12. But I think since we're talking about the West Coast, I think we have delayed talking about the biggest story of the weekend long enough. What the hell happened in San Diego? <laughs> like, I, <okay>. like, <laughs> yeah, I was, so you probably have the numbers up. Explain, yes, I, I explain I the situation okay. at, in San Diego State and San Diego, which low key, like we didn't talk about it last week on the podcast. I think Joe told me that he considered picking it as his his series for us to focus on. I uh, I didn't give it enough. Like I short shrifted it until I realized late, too late, that like it could have been one of the best pitching matchups on Friday night. It wound up not 
being quite as good as it was from a scouting, quite as good as it could have been from a scouting perspective because San Diego, um, you know, the way they aligned the rotation. But, you know, these are two two teams that have some significant arms. You look at Troy Melton for San Diego State and, and Jake Miller and um, uh, Rustad, they're, they're at USD. Uh, so what what on paper it looks like a well-pitched series instead joe turns into what oh jesus just like a uh, so friday's friday's game i'll just read the scores we'll just let that stand alone friday's game san diego state wins 14 to 7 now that's a pretty high scoring game for friday but it's like you know what anything can happen but oh boy strap in second game san diego state wins 19 to 18 in 10 innings and this game was like 14 to 11 after three or something ridiculous like that and then in the finale uh, San Diego comes back to salvage a game by a 16 to 12 score. Now I'm just going to assume the wind was blowing out at 50 miles an hour. Like I can't imagine any other scenario. Here's the, the ugliest numbers here. San Diego's pitching staff an ERA of 1350 for the weekend, San Diego States 1067. Um, just not, yeah, so, not great. So when I joked about this on Twitter, first of all, it's important to mention that, these are day games. Uh, I, I think Friday night was actually a night game, but the, the rest were day games. And I joked about the score on Saturday on Twitter, and I got a text from an agent out there who reminded me that during the day, the stadium does play much more as a hitter's park than it does at night. It does have some pretty crazy day-night splits going on out there. But this was next level, and I have no answers for it. I, I, I really don't know. It was not, this was not the only place this happened. Um, I made a couple football jokes already on Twitter. It's one of my favorite things to do during college baseball games. I shouldn't say one of my favorite. I enjoy making college football jokes during baseball games that get out of hand like this. I, I ripped off a couple of them on opening weekend. But I could have ripped off some more. There were there were a lot of football looking scores out there, and you know I, I don't know if that's just uh, pitchers. You know, normally we see pitchers being ahead of the hitters. I don't know if that has somehow flipped in this strange season. I don't know if it's attributable to the defense that that again wasn't great around the country. I don't know if it's just the crazy weather led to some crazy winds. I. It's probably some of all of these things, but San Diego and San Diego State was definitely the most extreme example that we saw. I'm interested to dive in a little bit, just a preview for uh, listeners. I, I, I'm going to dive in a little bit on this, and my my weekly three strikes feature is back, and um, I've only started just now compiling the data, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to take a look at how many double-digit, just using an arbitrary cutoff of 10 runs, like how many double digit instances of double digit run scoring did we have over opening weekend? And then kind of find out what percentage of the games that was versus what it was like last year, for example, just cause I am curious cause it did feel to me like it was a pretty high scoring weekend. And we've talked about some of the reasons defense or just seeing a lot of different pitchers, which, you know, can, can go either way. Um, but uh, yeah, so cause maybe, maybe it's not on percentage basis. Maybe it's not as many as, as you would think, uh, maybe in large part due to the fact that you don't have like Northeastern teams traveling to SEC locales as much or ACC locales or, or what have you with, with pitchers that haven't really, you know, teams that just haven't been outside. So we didn't have as much of that. So maybe that ends up tamping some of it down, but 
long story short, I'm going to write that up for a little little nugget on my three strikes this week, and we'll, we'll find out together whether it was a lot or not as many as it, it seemed on paper, because it, it did seem like a lot. So speaking of crazy offense, uh, Joe, I, I'm a little surprised you haven't mentioned Florida Atlantic's Caleb Pendleton yet. Uh, he hit two grand slams in the same inning of his college debut on Saturday night. Um, <laughs> that in itself is just the, that's the tweet. As, as we would say, I FAU scored one of the bigger upsets of the weekend, beating Central Florida in a series that uh, split between Orlando and Boca. Uh, but Caleb Pendleton, a big time get for FAU uh, as, as a freshman. And he only played in the one game this weekend. We'll see exactly what his role is going forward. FAU has a good catching situation, as they typically do. Um, he's kind of the next one in line, but you know, I, he didn't get a hit the rest of the game either. So I, it was, it was an incredibly abnormal performance, but uh, absolutely fantastic performance and, and, and one that I know he'll never forget. No doubt about that. He pulled off what I like to call the Fernando Tatis. And for you youths out there, that's Fernando Tatis Sr. I don't know who that is, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) You classify as a youth in this situation. Uh, Two two grand slams in an inning for Fernando Tatis Sr. Funny story about him. I had uh, cousins who grew up in the St. Louis area. And they, they liked baseball and liked the Cardinals, but in a very casual way. Like they would, you know, they'd go to a couple games a year and they'd watch the occasional game on TV, but they couldn't tell you. Now, this is like the late 90s, early 2000s, beyond like Mark McGuire or Jim Edmonds a little bit later on, Scott Rowland. They really couldn't tell you much about the the team, but they happened to be watching the day that Fernando Tatis hit two grand slams. And so you you had to kind of like, I remember having to like tell them like, no, actually like Fernando Tatis is not like one of the best hitters in, in baseball. Like he's, he's just, you know, he's not, he is not like the new, the second coming of Mark McGuire here, but because they had watched that one specific game, like they had just decided that Fernando Tatis was like a hall of fame type of, of hitter. And there was no, uh, there was no convincing them otherwise. So that's kind of become a little bit of a joke in my family that, uh, you know, Fernando Tatis just didn't quite live up to their hall of fame potential. They, they had for him, but. Um, you heard it here first, Caleb Pendleton hall of fame potential. That's right. That's right. He's the next Fernando Tatis, which is to say a hall of famer. Uh, yeah, a good weekend offensively for FAU. Uh, you know, I think um, I may have undersold what they could do offensively. Um, with uh, part of that, I think is just I've become so hardened to the fact that FAU just hits every year. But they got a really good weekend from, you know, obviously Caleb Pendleton, heck of a game there. But Nolan Shanuel, another one of their newcomers, uh, hit over 500 this weekend. DJ Murray is a breakout guy, uh, really good athlete, like looks the part, just hasn't put it all together yet. He had a really good weekend. The question of course is going to be pitching. Now, you know, if they're going to score as many runs as they did this past weekend, then they don't need a ton of pitching, but that is the bigger question. And so for as good as the offense was, they also weren't doing a lot to keep UCF from scoring. So that's really going to be the question moving forward. And I think their ceiling is largely, I mean, the, the offense controls their floor because I think they're, they're, they're going to compete for a postseason berth because they can hit and because they, they typically find a way to cobble together the pitching um, the pitching being any better than that is what controls the, is what controls the ceiling. And we're just, we're not going to know that until we, we get a little more, a few more data points under our belts here. All right. Just want to run through some stuff here quickly. And Joe, you can react to any of this stuff uh, 
if you want once uh, to get through some of it. Uh, Boston College swept Charleston Southern, which by itself doesn't seem like that big a deal, but considering how slow BC started last year, just getting those three wins on the board is, is significant going into ACC play next weekend. Um, Clemson swept Cincinnati. That was a, a pretty competitive series despite the sweep, and Cincinnati's going to be solid, so that's a good one for Clemson. They have South Carolina this weekend in obviously a, a big rivalry set. Uh, North Carolina Central swept Army, the Patriot League favorite, and that on itself would be significant. But then when you consider that NC Central just a week ago, a week before opening day anyway, uh, got news that the program was going to be eliminated at the end of the season, just the emotional rebound there uh, is is massive. So definitely shouts to the Eagles uh, for, for getting that, that sweep done. Uh, Samford goes three and zero this weekend. That's a that's a nice start for them. Duke goes to Coastal, wins a series, not unexpected, but a, obviously that that's going to end up being a really nice series win when all said and done. It was a wonky series ultimately, but uh, good 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 on Duke uh, for getting that series win. I know, Joe, you were interested in seeing what Louisiana Lafayette had this weekend against Tulane, and they come out with the series win. And then Xavier going to College Station and upsetting Texas A&M uh, feels pretty significant. Xavier annually challenges itself in terms of uh, early season schedules. Oftentimes doesn't come up with the wins. They, they usually only win like one of the the games of the series and end up like much closer to 500 overall than their, their their talent indicates but this time they uh they got it done down there and now texas a&m starting at one and two that's uh that's a tough one for for the aggies yeah and it strikes me that you know xavier is probably better than to your point the record last year for example suggests but it did strike me that that's typically the kind of series that even the, even the A&M teams that aren't necessarily top 25 teams or potential top teams in the SEC West, that, that's typically the type of series that A&M wins those three games by a combined like 26 to four score or something like that. And so I'm not necessarily uh, hitting any sort of panic buttons on A&M, but like that definitely is the type of series that they typically handle pretty easily, kind of like they did in the finale when they won 15 to nothing. It's usually kind of like a, a weekend of that. So that was that definitely caught my caught my attention there. So good win there. The the UL and, and Tulane series was probably the closest series played anywhere this weekend. Uh, like just razor thin margins in all three games. Really good news for uh, the Raging Cajuns. I think it suggests that uh, um, they're ready to be quite competitive in the Sun Belt. Uh, we'll see to what extent that's enough to to you know compete at the top of the Sun Belt, but certainly. Um, that was good news there. And even for Tulane, I mean, they put up some runs and that was more of the question with Tulane. So maybe you can even take some positives of that if you're the green wave, although you would have liked to have, have won that series in the end. Uh, Duke quickly liked what I saw on offense. Um, didn't like what I saw on the mound necessarily. Going to have to get more from Jack Carey and Henry Williams if they are going to continue to be the guys in the rotation. Um, it doesn't necessarily, they don't have to be. Um, but Cooper Stinson was pretty good. So there was, there was that. So questions to answer there for Duke. 
on the mound. But again, like, like what I saw offensively, uh, you know, I think Peter Matt did show that he can bring a level of physicality to the offense. Um, you know, so liked that they were able to, you know, scrap together the runs they, they were there. So liked all that. And I, so, uh, on Clemson, Clemson's one of the more intriguing teams to me and I've, I'll kind of have my eye on them. Obviously this weekend, it's an easy thing to do because they have the rivalry series against South Carolina. But, um, one of the questions I had about them is, is there another Sam Weatherly and kind of what I've wondered is maybe it's Davis Sharp kind of taking another step in his development. You may remember that as a freshman, he was, he was a nice arm, but he was, uh, seemed like maybe he wore down as the season went on. He didn't really dominate. He was just kind of a solid starter for them. And last year appeared to maybe take a step forward. And um, we just never really got to see that come fully come to fruition. Well, he puts together a good start. Um, opening weekend, one hit over five innings with nine strikeouts. That'll, that'll certainly do the trick there. So you like that as maybe a piece of the front of the rotation and the offense was, was good. Um, you know, the offense, you know, hit nearly 300 for the weekend, but it's, it's the guys you, you felt like maybe you needed to see take steps forward, you know, Bryce Teodosio with a good weekend and Dylan Brewer with a good weekend. Um, Jonathan French with a good weekend. So, um, it's, it's a team that I still don't know. I, th- I think it's maybe a team closer to on the bubble than a team that hosts, but I think it's a team that certainly, if you're, if you're going to tell me that Davis Sharp is, is going to be a big time AC, you know, all ACC type of arm at the front of the rotation, which we don't know if he is, but certainly like what we saw this weekend. And then if the offense is a little more well-rounded, I don't know that there's a Seth beer on this offense, maybe. Um, I mean, probably not just, probably. yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, easy to, given easy to what forget. Seth Beer is. Yeah. Seth Beer, one of the greatest hitters in Clemson history. Yeah. So that's pretty high bar to clear there, but if you're going to tell me there's a little bit more depth there and that maybe some guys, you know, uh, whether it's a freshman like Caden Grice or if it's Jonathan French, or if it's, maybe it's Teodosio putting it all together. If maybe they've got one or two of those types of guys, I think it could be a pretty good offense and be a team that maybe is a little more safely off the bubble than I think. Um, so that's a team I think I'm going to be watching relatively closely the next couple of weekends. Yeah, absolutely. One, one more that I should have mentioned is uh, UConn and UVA. We talked about that on the pod and UVA gets uh, gets a series win, but UConn looks solid. Uh, it was a weird opening game, more runs than I would have expected settled down from there as a series and uh, Virginia now the number two ranked team in the country. So uh, look out for the who's going into ACC play. All right, uh, we covered an awful lot of ground there. Um, there, we could keep talking. There, it's it's just great to have the games back. Like I mentioned at the top, uh, to to be able to talk about action that was on the field. But we're we're going to cut it off, and we're going to uh, come back at you later in the week to preview the the weekend to come. And uh, if anything important happens in midweek, the few midweek games that are, that are scheduled this week, we'll. Uh, We'll definitely touch on them as well. So make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us there. Joe and I are on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA, and there is plenty to read and will be throughout the week over at baseballamerica.com. So thank you again to Rap Soto for presenting the Baseball America College Podcast. Thank you to Joe for joining me as always. And thanks to you guys, the listeners. We're so happy college baseball is back and, and that you're along 
for the ride for the 2021 season with us. We'll talk to you next week on the Baseball America College Podcast.